Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. We are coming quickly to the end of summer. And as a parent, I know someone who is not at all looking forward to going back to school. And I bet you know somebody, if not a child in your own household, maybe a grandchild, who is also not looking forward to going back to the classroom. Last year, one morning, someone a little bit like this person was down at the kitchen table, slowly eating their breakfast. Aren't you going to get ready for school, they were asked? Nope, not today. People make fun of my clothes. They make fun of my hair. The boys laugh at me and the girls pass notes around about me. No one ever sits with me in the lunchroom and no one listens to a word I say. Come on, they were told. It's not that bad. And besides, you have to go. You're the teacher. Now, the person I know who doesn't want to go back to school struggles a little bit with math. And maybe you do too. If you got an average of 35 emails during the week, Monday through Friday, and 10 on Saturday and Sunday, and there's 52 weeks in the year, how many emails do you get between January and December? And they also struggle a little bit with French. And maybe you do too. Ou peut-être pas, car nous sommes tous des Montréalais, n'est-ce pas? We all speak good French, living here in Quebec. School, you see, emphasizes all these things, doesn't it? Plus, in addition to math and French, science and art and music and geography and history, all these subjects, all these papers to be written, all these tests to be taken. But let me ask the rest of you who are not going back to school this question. What do you remember from your time in grades one through six or your time in high school? Do you remember the mark that you got in grade 10 in your first semester history quiz? Do you remember the mark that you got in your science fair project? Or do you remember what it was like to be there? Do you remember what teachers you liked the most? Do you remember who your friends were? Maybe some of you are even still in touch with some of the people that you went to school with. Do you remember most maybe before any other quizzes or grades, how you were treated. The other night I made uh, Deb suffer with me through a parent council meeting for the Sir Wilfrid Laurier School Board. Uh, we're one of those few boards that still has one of these parent councils. And uh, after about an hour of haggling over different issues, we finally got down to the business at hand, which is how are we all gonna go back to school in the midst of this pandemic? What are gonna be some of the restrictions that are gonna be put in place? What's it gonna look like for students? What's it gonna look like for teachers? And what really struck me over the course of that meeting was two of the questions that were asked. One was, given that our child's classroom is gonna be their social bubble for the whole year, what if that social bubble includes my child's bully? And the second question, which was an awfully lot like it, was how is someone going to be treated if they have to come back from a 14-day quarantine by their classmates? And how will the teachers handle kids being picked on because they might or might not have had COVID-19? Now, what does any of this have to do with Romans chapter 12? 
as we continue our read through of Paul's great epistle. Well, Paul practically bombards us with a list of things that Christians are supposed to be all about in our reading for today. And if you're a teacher, you might be thinking that what is Paul, Paul is giving us is a rubric. This is the guide over which we can judge Christian behavior. Does this person look like a Christian? Is there maybe a passing grade or are they a complete failure based on what Paul lists out in this chapter? This is the, the grading curve, if you will, for Christian lifestyles. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Bless those who persecute you. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. Live peaceably with all. Do you know what's missing from that list? Actually, several things. Be great at science. Be outstanding at math. Be gifted in French or Spanish or English or Mandarin. Never forget your history. Outdo one another in your knowledge of maps and geography. None of that is in this list of what Paul says are the most important qualities to have within ourselves. What the Christian values is not just quantitatively, but qualitatively different than what the world values and grades and promotes. Now, as the old proverb goes, faith alone justifies, but faith is never alone. It was one of the statements that the Lutherans, the early reformers, came up with to try to explain to their medieval counterparts why saying we are saved by faith alone does not therefore mean that Christ has abandoned people to their own devices, that Christ is no longer interested in, by the power of the Spirit, raising up members for himself that look like what he looked like when he walked the earth of Palestine. Living out our trust that Jesus has saved us from our sins on the cross is not easy. In fact, Jesus calls it denying yourself and taking up your cross. The taking up of a cross, you see, is a public affair with little worldly reward, and in fact, with an awful lot of worldly punishment to go along with it. Crucifixion, as you have heard me say on many occasions, and you will hear me say for many more, was not just about dying. Crucifixion was about public humiliation. It was about inflicting a condition of hopelessness on someone. It was about exercising control. The victim of crucifixion was being publicly shamed before their entire community so that they would know who is in charge. Their power as the ones crucifying is visible and relies on force. 
what Paul or Jesus is suggesting when he tells us to take up our cross and follow him is that our power is hidden and that it relies instead of force on faith. Showing faith rather than force is going to look different. Showing forth the qualities that Jesus is raising up in us isn't necessarily going to get you a better job. In fact, it might deny you a promotion. It's not going to help you climb the corporate ladder in a world that prizes qualities that Paul doesn't list in Romans 12. It's not necessarily going to get you better and bigger rewards. But the promise Jesus makes and that Paul is building on as an apostle of Jesus Christ is that these qualities will make a difference. Who, after all, is going to be best remembered by their classmates? The know-it-all who got an A in every single class, the one who aced every single assignment, the one who could study for half an hour and know everything there was to know about the entire class and pass their exam with flying colors? Or is the one who is best remembered the one who rejoiced with those who rejoiced, who wept with those who wept, who loved with brotherly affection, who abhorred what is evil and held fast to what is good? The world will not grade you or I on our adherence to this Christian rubric. But then the world didn't think much of Jesus either. For which of the good works I have done do you want to stone me, Jesus once said in the Gospel of John. Jesus didn't come to teach math, to explore the wonders of science with us, to introduce us to all sorts of new languages which didn't even exist at Jesus's time. Two examples, English and French. Jesus didn't help the stock market. He didn't contribute to the gross domestic product of Israel. If he'd stayed a carpenter, the world might have loved him. He might have built some really great things that people would have looked at and said, look at that house. Look at that cabinetry. Instead, he came to do something far more important that while it wasn't prized all that much at the time, came to change the human race and the world forever. He came to forgive sins and die for the life of the world. So of course the world didn't care until later when it came to appreciate that all the things that it valued so much were temporary but that what Jesus has to offer us is eternal. This Christian rubric that Paul lays out, not just in Romans 12, but throughout his epistles, and not just Paul, but the other apostles as well, building on the one who first laid these things out, which is Jesus, applies only to us. The world can't grasp it, can't understand it, can't imagine why these things would be important. But this rubric is given to us because we are the ones who've been baptized into Christ. We are the ones who can say we are sons and daughters of God the Father Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And if we are members of Christ's body in our baptism, have been saved through his blood, then he who saved us never leaves us 
but continues to work in us that we might be conformed to his image. So school is in, but the students that the world needs are not math students, science geniuses, or English majors. Look at the news and see how much value English majors might contribute to the mess that everything seems to be in. What we need is those who will take up their cross humbly and follow in the footsteps of the one who has delivered them, who can and wants in turn to deliver the world. People who will abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, loving one another with brotherly affection, and outdoing one another in showing honor. These are the people that in their lifetime might be ignored, might be seen to not be worth anything. And they are always the ones in the end that people look back on and say, why did they do what they did? Why did they live the way they did? Which can only point people to Christ and only bring about their salvation. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.